Father, I still can't believe that you so loved the world that you gave your son so that we could have life and have it forever. So we're just delighted to be in your presence to sing for your glory. A sinner saved by grace and standing here this morning speaking your word. And so I just ask that you will allow us to hear from you and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we have and that we'll walk away recognizing that you still love us, care about us, still speak to us, and until we see you face to face, it will never change. In your name we pray, amen. Man, there's something about the power of music. How many of you forgot to set your clocks and you think this is a nine o'clock service? Any of you? Uh, a couple of you? Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. There were a lot of holes missing from this first service this morning than the previous week, so I wondered how many would be here this morning. I want to make an interesting announcement. You've got to hear it clearly without me able to give you many more details about it. If you are a person who have found significant freedom from your past through Christ, and you're not ashamed to let others know without having to say a word, or you've had God heal you in a dramatic way, I would love to meet you for 10 minutes in the legacy room after the service this morning to explain something that I would like to do for this Easter. That make sense? 10 minutes is usually all I'll need. Legacy room outside that door over there to your right. If you know you've been rescued by Christ, you recognize your past, whatever that may have been, adultery, pornography, whatever it may have been, and you know you have been rescued and redeemed by Jesus, or maybe you've seen God do a dramatic healing in your life and you're willing to allow us to use that for His glory on Easter Sunday without you ever having to say a word. It will make sense when I explain it, but I don't want to unpack it here so that there's a sense of anticipation. Are you anticipating now? All right, good, it worked. Anybody want 20 bucks? Who? There you go. Now, two weeks from now, you have to tell me what you did with it. Somehow there's a little more weight that goes with it now, right? Take your Bibles out, turn to James chapter 4 and 5. What are you doing with what you've been given? That's the sermon title this morning. We're kind of moving toward the end of James. We're going to finish it by Palm Sunday. And then we're going to celebrate what God's done in our lives on Easter Sunday morning. James chapter 4, you've got sermon notes in your bulletin. Take them out. Beginning at verse 13, he's talking about two different subjects, time and resources in this section. What are you doing with what you've been given? Now listen, you who say, doesn't mean everybody says this, but you who say, today, tomorrow we'll do this, we'll go to that city, we'll spend a year there, carry on business, make money. You don't know that you have tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll do this, we'll do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and that kind of boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, for them, it is sin. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because misery is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted, moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corrupted, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. This is a fun guy to be around, isn't it? You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. And the cries of those harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. 
You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves on the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now that is an uplifting section of scripture, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine you're at the year end of your investment firm. You've made a ton of money. Things have gone incredibly well. And all of a sudden, the door opens up and James walks in. You rich people. It's not what he's saying at all. That's not even the attitude he's coming with. He's obviously going to talk about resources. But more than just money, he's going to talk about our time and our talent and our abilities. His focus is on money. It sounds like that, of course, but his intention is bigger than that. You need to understand, James doesn't have any problem with money at all. There is nothing wrong with making money. If God has blessed you with it, rejoice and be thankful. His focus is not on making money. His focus is on what we do with it, and even more so, what we do with the excess. Not just what we live on or need to live on, He doesn't want you to sell everything you have and be poor so that now somebody else is having to take care of you. What he is saying is, I want you to clearly understand, once you recognize what you have to live on, what you need to live on, what you need for your family, what you need to pay bills, what you need with your tithe, what are you doing with all that excess? If you've made a lot, what are you doing with the excess? You stored it up and you're being self-centered for those who have done that for themselves. And there are a lot of people who also have gotten their wealth on the backs of their employees or at the expense of their employees. That's who he's going after here. Look, the wages you failed to pay your workers who mowed your grass or mowed your field, crying out against you. You have made what you have made on the backs of your employees and sometimes at the expense of your employees. That's who he's going after in this section of Scripture. It's reminiscent of chapter 4, verse 3. When you ask, you don't receive. Why? Because you're asking with wrong motives. You want to spend it on your own pleasure, not for the benefit of others. That's what James is dealing with here. Two issues, one in four, one in five. The first one is time. Every single one of us have a certain amount of time that God has placed us on this earth. Every single one of us. No exceptions. Every one of you, myself included, have a certain amount of time that has been given to us. He alluded to that in verse 5. Your, your life, you know it. You need to understand, in the scheme of things, is pretty small and quickly goes away. No one but God knows exactly how long we're going to live. But every single one of us have been given a certain amount of time. And for every one of us, it's different. Scripture says, if by reason of strength you may live to 70 or 80, the average lifespan is 70, maybe you'll live longer than that, that's okay. If you die at 60, though, you're responsible for those 60 years, and the question will be, what have I done with what I've been given? There's no guarantee as to how long you'll live on this earth, regardless of the fact that Scripture said, average-wise, 70, if by reason of strength, 80. None of us have a guarantee. You live 30 years, 20 years, 15 years, 60 years, whatever that may be, what are you doing with what you've been given? Now, if you're 80 years old and hearing that, you're going, I'm okay, I'm probably going to go out in this world. But if you're 30 or 40, you think, man, I want to I live a little longer. There's some things I want to do. In 2009, when I was in intensive care and went to sleep that night, I thought literally I'd wake up the next day in heaven. So the Lord and I had a conversation that night. I know, I know you. I know if I die tonight, I'm going to go to heaven. But if you don't mind, I'd really like to stay here for a little bit longer. 
It's up to you, but I really love what I'm doing. I like where I'm at. I love my kids. I love my family. I want to see the grandkids grow up a little bit. So if you don't mind, I'd love to stay here a little bit longer. And believe it or not, I went to sleep. I woke up the next morning and kind of opened one eye. I only have one good one. So I opened one eye, and I kind of looked around, and I thought, if this is heaven, I'm kind of disappointed. Because number one, it doesn't look like it. Number two, I'm still wired up to all this stuff. And number three, as wonderful as that nurse was, she wasn't what I thought an angel would look like. None of us have any guarantee as to how long we'll have. Time is a resource, and what we do with it matters. There's very few things in life have the power to wake us up or shake us up like death. It has the capacity to allow us to quit ignoring the inevitable because death is something that's going to hit all of us. And every once in a while, some event will shake us up or wake us up to the realization of that. James knew those things are going to happen. James knew we only had a certain amount of time on life. He knew the people he was writing to had no idea if they were going to get tomorrow because they were scattered everywhere under persecution. So he just wanted to make sure they clearly understand that this is an incredibly valuable commodity called time. I just don't want you to waste it. And so he says some things to shake us up so that we don't take life for granted. When I began ministry, I thought I'd be doing most of the funerals that I would do for older people. That's what they told us in seminary. That's what they said probably would happen. If by reason of strength, maybe 80, you'll be probably doing a funeral. So that's what I assumed. I came to my very first church as a solo pastor, and three months into it, a 17-year-old shot and killed a 16-year-old brother. And then an 8-year-old boy was run over by a truck, and a 21-month-old baby died, and a 20-year-old Marine was killed in an accident. And I thought, man, this is not what they told me in seminary. And this didn't prepare me for what I was doing. I wrote that down in my sermon notes a, a week or so ago, and, and then I wrote this note that followed it. When I was a young pastor, I promised myself that when I became an old, older pastor, I wouldn't repeat my stories. And I know I've told you all of that before. So if you're sitting there going, you've told us that before. In every sermon that I've ever gone to, when you speak at a funeral, you've told us that before. I know that, but I'm telling you, it does shake you up when you realize there is no guarantee and life is incredibly fragile. I'm not always comfortable with advertisements or events that try to scare people into making a decision for God. When I was in high school and college, everybody was showing Distant Thunder and Thief in the Night. Any of you remember those? Kind of three of you. Every once in a while, they would show these movies. They'd invite people in. They would try to get people to understand the world's going to come to an end. God's going to return. The rapture's going to take people out. So you're driving down the road. All of a sudden, your driver disappears. You're going down the road in the bus. The bus driver's gone and all those kind of things. And all of a sudden, everybody's woke up and shaken up and thinking, okay, I've got to make a decision for God. And then when those things were done and all of a sudden they became dated, they started doing the Left Behind series. And Tim LaHaye took the same concept and did it again. And churches were showing it. People were realizing, wow, this is real. We've got to be ready for this. We've got to understand that. Some churches sponsored events like Heaven Gates and Hell's Flames in an effort to wake people up to the reality of heaven and hell, the consequences of life choices. All of those are awesome. But for some reason, some people would make a decision based on that moment but never impact their life at all. And the issue isn't I all of a sudden have to have that experience to wake me up or shake me up. I've got to recognize from the very beginning my life is fragile. 
My life is precious. This gift of time is a gift from God, and I don't want to blow it, don't want to waste it, and don't want to get to the end of time saying, wow. And there were billboards, I, I love this one, announcing that the day of judgment was going to be on May 21st, 2011. Did any of you see that one? Did it happen? Oh, okay, so we're still here? All right, just want to be sure. There's a lot of events over the last few months and years that have a lot of people wondering what is going to happen in this world. I mean, you can't wake up in the morning, you can't read the news or listen to the news or recognize what's going on around you with wars and floods and fires and school shootings and unbelievable political hatred all across the land and not wonder, is it now? Is it going to happen? When's it going to be? And while I'm not in favor of scare tactics or manipulation to get people to convert to Christianity, every once in a while we do need a wake-up call to get our attention. If someone tells you your furnace is going to blow up in a scam to get you to buy a new one, you should be angry. But if it's a service person that you trust and they tell you that, they could be your best friend. James is trying to be a friend. And to remind all of us about the inevitability of two major events in our lives. Death and, not taxes, judgment. Death and judgment. In my 400 plus funerals, I've done a lot of funerals for people under what would be considered a normal age. 30 and under, 20 and under, and in the middle ground. And you're standing there as a pastor trying to help them understand what has just taken place and how their world has just changed for the rest of their lives. And it's a very difficult position to be in. And on many occasions, I say to them, as honest as I know how, I don't understand this. And I'm not going to tell you that I do. Because one thing I've learned in ministry and life, there are a lot of things that happen that I don't understand, but there are a few things I know for sure. One is that we will all die. Second, we will all stand before Almighty God and give an account of how we lived. And thirdly, none of us know for sure when that will happen. So I want to make sure every single one of them know that the answer to eternity is Jesus. Hebrews 9, 27 in your sermon notes said, Just as people were destined once to die, right after that, the judgment. You can deny it, you can ignore it, but it's going to happen. And to warn people about that is a good thing, and that is exactly what James is trying to do. Look, I want you to understand, you think your life is on forever. You think tomorrow do this, tomorrow do that, whatever. You don't know for sure you're going to have tomorrow. Your life is a vapor passing very quickly. A vapor or mist. Some refer to that as a cloud on a summer day passing on by. All of us, when we were kids, all of a sudden laid down in the backyard. We looked up at those clouds, and we tried to find the bear and the elephant and the donkey, all those animals, right? And then the longer you'd watch it, all of a sudden it just kind of dissipated, and it wasn't that anymore. And James is saying, look, I love you enough to make sure you understand that's in the grand scheme of eternity beginning to end. That's what your life is like. But use it well. Use it wisely. We all know that many people live like they don't believe it or at least like they'd rather not think about it. But for those of us who are older, when we look back, we realize how fast time and life has gone. James continues his thought. He moves away from time to resources. Listen, you need to understand you've been given a certain amount of resources, and I want you to use it wisely and use it well, not for yourself, 
but for the benefit of other people. You need what you need to pay your bills and to take care of the house and all the things that go with it. I just need you to understand that when you've been given excess, you need to use it wisely. What he's doing is trying to wake up or shake up some who think that this life is all about me. Who think they can go through life without ever understanding that they're going to stand before God and give an account of what they've done who think that they can go through life using everything they have only for their own benefit. And James would say, I need you to understand that's not the case. When I read this, it reminded me of the Christmas carol, right? Ebenezer Scrooge, who just simply thought everything he accumulated and counted it up and stacked it up was just for him, and it took the shake-up event to recognize it's not all about you, brother. And now, of course, at the end, he begins to give it away. James 4 says, look, the wages you failed to pay others, you got what you got on the backs of other people, and you've taken advantage of them. And the cries of those harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. NIV interprets it as that. I think a better translation, some would say, is the Lord of hosts, which infers a couple of things. There are two types of judgment in Scripture. I think they're in your sermon notes. Great white throne judgment of God and the beam of seat of Christ. If you've ever had anybody say, or you've said it, or you've heard somebody say, is your name written in the book? Have you ever heard that phrase? That's what it's referring to in that Revelation 20 passage. Now, in a number of months, we're going to deal with Revelation and unpack it as a sermon series on a Sunday morning. So I'm not going to get in depth. But essentially, when you receive Christ as your Savior, he wrote your name in what's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And at the end of time, the books are opened up. And if your name's there, you get heaven. If it's not there, hell. And people will say, well, how can a loving God, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that you prayed about a moment ago, how could he send anyone to hell? He doesn't. We choose that destiny on our own by ignoring what he's been offering us for 2,000 years. That should be long enough time to make up your mind about what you want to do with your eternal destiny, right? You just need to know there will come a day when the books will be opened. And whether your name is there or not is critical to your eternal destiny. The second one is the beam of seat of Christ. Any of you going through ordination? You're going to be ordained? None of you? Okay, this won't matter then. No. When we go through ordination, one of the questions that are always asked, what is the two judgments and well, you know, the judgment seat of Christ, but what is its name? And you have to say the Bema seat. And I'm going, whoever uses that outside answering that question. It's a reference to the judgment seat of Christ listed in your sermon notes in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3. And although we hear the term judgment and we think he's going to really nail me for the things that I didn't do right, I thought it was all forgiven and under the blood. I thought all my sin, and the list is endless. He's going to get me now. It's the judgment seat of Christ. And we get a misconception as to what it is. When Paul uses the term, he's talking about that moment in the Olympic arena when everybody has done their best to achieve their goal and they stand before the guy who praises the ribbon or the bow or whatever it may be on them to say, you've done a great job. You've achieved what I've asked you to do. You've done your best for this. There'll be others who tried, thought it would work, tried to do it for their own benefit. They wanted to sound spiritual, wanted to be spiritual. They thought, if I just do all of these things, it'll make me look good to Jesus. That stuff's going to get burned up. It really doesn't matter. But the things we've done with a pure motive, with a pure heart, 
really just wanting to serve Jesus, not for what I get, but for what he's done, those things are going to last. And there's going to come that day, he said, where the, the, the stuff that you didn't think was that good or that you thought was good just for you is going to get burned up. But the things you really did, honestly, for him and for his glory and not so that you look good, that's going to last. Some obvious things, leading people to Christ, investing in a ministry and allowing people and God to use your gifts and your resources for his glory. There'll be other things that matter that you won't think mattered, but to him it really does. Maybe you're serving in a nursery or have served in a nursery. And you're holding that one-year-old that's not your own. And they've done something all over you. And you're thinking, why am I doing this? I don't even own this kid. But that mom who probably hasn't been out of the house or anywhere else for the last three or four or five months or six months has an opportunity on that Sunday to come into a service and hear the love of Jesus. And that moment changed her life forever. And all you were doing was holding her baby. You didn't even know the baby. You didn't even remember its name. But man, that moment in time when you did it for the glory of God, not for what you get out of it, but for his glory, could have changed that person's life forever. Those things will last. James is not condemning rich people at all, but only those who live for themselves. It's an issue that was constantly one of the central themes of the gospel. Jesus dealt with it on a regular basis in your sermon notes, spoke most often of two things, the value of a human soul and the use of resources. Over 2,000 verses on money and possession, four times more than almost any other subject. 16 out of 38 parables dealt with possessions. The rich guy who had so much and said, I want to continue this and I want to build bigger barns. I want to keep this for myself. I want to accumulate. I want it for me. All of a sudden, when he asked the question, what will I do next? I know what I'll do for me. I'll just build a bigger barn. Spirit of God came and said, you just need to know you're going to die tonight. James indicated here that what we do with our riches tells a lot about who we are. Jesus said the exact same thing. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus would essentially say, you can tell me what you feel about things. I want to see what you're doing. Sounds a lot like James, doesn't it? In the early 90s, there was a survey done and found that per capita income in the United States literally doubled from the 50s to the 90s. And yet the survey was taken, only 33% felt they were any better off or even happier. Twice as wealthy not much happier. Now, some think they deserve it. Others see it as a sign of God's blessing. Others see it as an enormous responsibility because now I've been given to it by somebody that i got to give an account for. Jesus wasn't rich. James wasn't rich. As we began this series, he's talking to people who are scattered all over the place. And he's talking them to them in an environment that you and I would probably have a hard time putting our minds around unless you've traveled overseas enough. And to realize that when you go to many third world countries or even Europe, some places, but most of all Africa and, and other places, you'll find out there is no middle class. It's very rich or very poor. First time I went overseas to the last time I went overseas, I was still stunned by that. That I would drive one street on a dusty, dirty road and find unbelievable wealth and incredible poverty. Middle class really wasn't even talked about until after the Industrial Revolution 
more specifically after World War II, what James is writing to is a culture of people who what you and I would understand as the third world country. And he's saying to them, I need you to understand that God has lavished everything he possibly could. Don't only see it in these physical, tangible resources. We have a God who shares his wealth with us, who lavished it on us, who doesn't store it up, who doesn't hoard it, but he gives it away. And you cannot possibly understand the heart and character of God and the heart of the gospel if you don't understand how to use the resources that God has given us, time and our talents and our treasures to make a difference in the lives of people. James is not beating up wealthy people. He's simply reminding us that one of the tenets of the gospel is we're blessed so that we can bless. Point in your notes, life is short. Invest in the right things. I know I put this in there before, but it still fascinates me. 59% of the world's wealth is in the United States. If you have food in your fridge, clothes on your back, a roof overhead, and a place to sleep, you're richer than 75% of the world. If you have money in the bank, in your wallet, spare change on a dish somewhere, or in my case, in the middle of my truck dashboard, you're among the top 8% of the world's wealthiest. Economically, compared to most of the world, we're rich. None of this was ever given or said or shared, even what I'm sharing here this morning, in an effort to make us feel guilty at all. It's shared as a reminder of the brevity and the preciousness of life. And a reminder to feel unbelievably grateful for the resources that have been given into our hands so that we can use them for God's glory. Because I am blessed, I want to bless. God, what do you want me to do with this gift called time? What do you want me to do with the resources you've entrusted into my care? The God of the universe started it. Jesus exemplified it so we can imitate it. You ever give something to somebody and it just felt so good and it gave you a lot of joy? You ever wonder why you felt that way? You just get an opportunity to imitate God. You see, life's not about making a living in your notes. It is about making a difference. God, we're all here this morning to hear your voice. And so among all the things that we've shared in these last 35 minutes, I pray that we will have heard you. It's not just James speaking. It's this voice of God speaking to us through your word that has been preserved through time. And we now have the opportunity to unpack it. Father, help us to use what you have entrusted into our care wisely and really, really well. If you're sitting here this morning and you recognize, you know what? I work with a guy. I work with a lady. I live near a person or somebody in my cubby or my cohort or whatever that may be, but kind of felt like I should probably tell them about Jesus. Can I just say to you this morning, tell them. Because <laughs> you don't know if they'll be there next week. Now, you have to know the Spirit of God's in it when you're doing it because you want to make sure that He's prepared them. And I guarantee you, if God tells you to do it, He's already prepared them. I just don't want you to go through life and all of a sudden they're gone and you're saying, man, I had the answer to life in Jesus and I didn't take the opportunity of using that well and now I'll never 
have that chance again. And if you've ever been there, you know that you don't want to let that slip on by. That may be your resources, whatever God's entrusted into your care and what you want to do with that. So just let him speak. The Father, in these moments, tell us, is there somebody that you want us to share what we have found because their time is limited? We don't want to tell them that. We just want to be sensitive to what you're asking us to do. And when we look at what we've been entrusted with, we want to make sure that we use it wisely and use it well. So in these really precious, quiet moments, speak. been speaking for a long time and to be honest with you I never know exactly how long a message is going to take until it's delivered so I know we're a couple of minutes early and nobody's ever been disappointed by that but I want your Sunday school class if those kids are still involved to stay there for a moment and I'll ask one, one more time if indeed you know in your life's journey you've been rescued from something in your past that's pretty significant and you know you've been redeemed and rescued by the blood of the cross and, and all of that but it's something that you feel, okay, you know what, I may be willing to share that without ever saying a word, and I'll explain it to you. Or maybe you've seen God heal you from something, and you're willing on Easter Sunday to take a risk and share that as well. Then I'd love for you to walk out that door over there. I need about 20, 25 from this service, Mac. It'll go in that room, and I'll explain it to you. I just don't want to tell everybody what it is, so everybody gets a chance to see it on Easter Sunday morning. Okay? God bless you. Have a great, great day. I can pray with you or our elders can pray with you. A couple are going to be here so that I can go to that. Uh, they'll do that as well.